Hello and welcome to the 7 Bytes podcast, created and hosted by 7 Psychology at Work. Positive change with purpose for people at work. We're based in Dublin and we have a global reach. In this podcast, you'll get to meet some of our expert team, hear about their specialisms and top tips, and also hear about our views on the current issues our clients are facing at work. In this episode, you'll get to meet one of the seven team, Dr. Michelle Mertag. And it's a fascinating discussion. Michelle is so open and generous in what she shares. We start with an insight into her experience of growing up in Northern Ireland in the Troubles, and how Michelle began honing her observational skills as she moved between schools. We hear about her route into organizational and business psychology and her groundbreaking PhD research, which was an exploration of self-confidence at work in relation to executive coaching. Now, we've all heard of the term self-confidence, and we probably use it a lot in relation to ourselves and others in the workplace. But what does it actually mean to be self-confident? And how does confidence or lack of confidence impact on our careers and the way we show up at work? There are plenty of insights and tips for us all from Michelle, so let's dive straight in. Hey, Michelle, great to see you. Welcome to The 7 Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Great to see you too. Now, I wonder if you could introduce yourselves to the listeners a bit. First of all, maybe just tell us where you're based. So I was born in Northern Ireland, grew up in Northern Ireland, and then I left when I was around 22 and I moved to London. And I lived in London for about 15 odd years. And then I went to Portugal and lived there for 10 years and then came back to Northern Ireland about 10 years ago. So a bit of a journey. Wow, so there's a... A bit of a boomerang. There's a fair... Yeah, boomerang. And there's a fair bit of moving around there. Moving around, different country. And in London, gosh, I can't tell you how many places I lived in London. You know what it's like whenever you go to a city like London, you find your first place to rent and then you find somewhere else and you find somewhere else. So even in London itself, there was lots of movement too. Yeah. Now, Michelle, you grew up in, in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So... I wonder if there's anything you could share about what that was like. As a child growing up in the Troubles, Ross, it was a really peculiar space. Um, I think for us, and this is before mobile phones, before anything, so the the mode of communication tended to be the radio um, in terms of keeping everyone abreast of what was happening. So... The radio just seemed to be constantly on in our house from seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock, and everyone went silent for the news. Like as soon as anyone was talking and the peep, pips came just before the news was going to begin, the whole house went silent. And so there was this constant narrative into the home around what was happening just outside the door. And it was scary. In truth, it was scary growing up. And I myself moved alongside my family many times um, and started many different schools. And I think because so much chaos was happening outside, I think we all grew up as pretty good kids because in our family, in that we didn't want to cause any more drama to what was already happening in the outside world. But what it did make me personally was invisible. Um, I I developed the art of not being seen. And I imagined that if I asked classmates, if I had been in school with them, they might not remember me because I was so good at blending in and just being um, 
grey, kind of just just being so normal that I was um, non-observable. But it gave me an amazing position in which to observe others. So from that sideline position, I was always on alert, always observant, always noticing. And so I was really interested to try and understand more about humans and more about me, I think, as well. So I was managed to get a place in Queen's University to study psychology, and I loved it from the day I first opened the big <laughs> psychology book that we had by Carlson. And everything about it started to help me make sense, not just of the world in Northern Ireland, but also of myself primarily. Um, and I studied for my bachelor's degree for three years with Queen's. And then I really wanted to go in and do clinical psychology. That was my passion. I really, really wanted to understand um, mental disorders more. And I started to work for the National Schizophrenic Society. And then I realized that I just couldn't hack it. I was too immature and I couldn't deal with the... Um, the limitations in terms of the interventions that we had at that point to help people who were struggling in that world. So a friend of mine, Orla, who I lived with, gave me the application form for occupational psychology. It had been about five o'clock that day. We scribbled frantically and filled them in, ran up to the doorway, slipped them in to the underneath the doorway of the Occupational psychology building because we were past the deadline. I think the deadline was five o'clock and we were like five past five. Flung them in underneath the door and went off to the pub. And then I got an offer for one of the eight places that were on the course. And I knew along the way, in terms of my psychology cohort, that so many people wanted that and I hadn't wanted it. And I felt really, really torn because I now had one of these coveted eight places and my friends and pe peers who really really wanted this hadn't got it and I even went off to a convent to speak to some really old wise monks to ask them what I should do because I was so torn at the fact that this opportunity came to me and I made the decision then to go for it. Michelle thanks for setting out your your journey, it's so fascinating to hear, and I'd love to take you back just to that beginning because that moved me tremendously when you were talking about moving around different schools yeah. and being invisible. Mm -hmm. That absolutely gave me goosebumps when you were talking about observing others and noticing and honing those skills at such an early age when it feels like you were the outsider. It was an interesting upbringing, Ross, in that because of family circumstances, I felt I did. I felt like the outsider. So I think whenever I got the opportunity, Ross, to go to London, oh my gosh, it was just an alternative part of me, a part that had been really suppressed for such a long time, um, who didn't go to church, who um, partied hard, who had a new identity that had no consequence in anybody. I could be who I could mm. be, and I could say what I could say, and there was no call. Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for for sharing that with us. It's, it's 
deeply powerful, your lived experience of recent, recent history. Mm -hmm. It can so often be overlooked that that impact on you is is tremendous and your family. Yeah. So thank you for for being so open and and sharing that. I think it's absolutely fascinating and humbling to hear about your experience. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And what's the cost of it? So if I look back in Northern Ireland, so one of the reasons of coming back to Northern Ireland, Ross, was to, I really didn't want to, but whenever we were leaving Portugal, my husband said, let's try it, because he's from Northern Ireland as well. And I really didn't want that life for my kids. Like, I was so not happening. That's not happening. Um, but we went back, and it was very different, and it's a really good place to live now. Like, it really is. But there's still a slight undercurrent, and it doesn't take much to be provoked into um, those that sort of thinking. Um, but on the whole, it's a totally different society. Just before I joined Seven, I was working for the William J. Clinton Leadership Institute in Queen's University in Belfast. And its intention is to try and uh, increase the uh, leadership capability of businesses in Northern Ireland because they have suffered so much in the conflict that the capacity of uh, learning um within business was so suppressed because there was no investment coming in during the civil war. So their intention was to try and help upskill uh, individuals at this level. And it was there that I became so aware of the lack of confidence that so many people had as a consequence of the troubles and just the little nuances that happened that nobody wants to put their head just a, a little bit more above the parapet than anybody else. Because in a, in a conflict society, being just the same as everybody else is really important. As soon as you step out of that and become someone different, then you no longer have the security of the community that you're in. And so when post-conflict working with leaders of businesses to try and push them forward and to capitalize on the capability that they had was just such a gift. But it was that observation at how suppressed individual's self-confidence was that led me to do the PhD. Wow. So not just for myself, because I had no self-confidence either, but um, also just seeing it for real on a constant daily basis being played out by these senior leaders. And the link to executive coaching was that it used to be when you had asked people what the coaching goal would be, they would say something like um, X, Y, Z, and I'd love to develop my self-confidence. And it just was such a constant ask within the coaching context. And then started doing a little bit of research and one of the uh, variables that was most impacted by executive coaching turns out to be self-confidence. So then that's why I wanted them to do the research that I did. Wow. He hearing the purpose behind your research gives it a whole added layer of texture and meaning for me. It's, it's, I think I've said this word already, but it's tremendously powerful because if you think about the context you're in and wanting to support those leaders to 
elevate themselves when they had learned behavior to to keep their heads down mm-hmm. and the lack of investment in in northern ireland wow it's it's giving me a whole new perspective because i think i think i don't know i was at school decades ago but i don't think we're taught recent history yeah. as much as we should yeah. be so michelle how long have you been with seven i've been working with seven for just over five years now what have been some of the, the peak moments in your career, would you say? I think we've probably heard a couple of them already, but tell us about a peak moment in your career. I think the peak moment in my career was actually joining Seven. When I got interviewed by Joanna, I was immediately mad about her. Like I was just in absolute awe of her. So at that point, seven, we're in this um, fabulous offices and they were, the decor was amazing. And Joanna was so open and caring and kind. And I was in awe of her ability to make me feel seen and heard and understood in just moments. And I really, really wanted the job, Ross. And she was describing how there was the, Uh, internal family and then she had a cohort of what she described as the first cousins and I really really wanted to be a first cousin I just was so so when I got the offer I was ecstatic ecstatic and the opportunity to work alongside Joanna has been extraordinary I've learned so much from her and as I reflect on leaders that I have had the opportunity to work with in throughout the entirety of my career. She is the one that I hold most in terms of the model of who I would like to be as a leader, if I could. Wow. Wow. That's, that's so tremendous to hear. And hell yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I agree. And for our listeners, it was Michelle who was kind enough to introduce me to, to seven as well so so I had a very very similar experience and couldn't agree more something that really strikes me Michelle is you saying that you felt really seen by Joanna and it makes me reflect back to when you were talking about school where you were finessing the art of being invisible is there is there a kind of link there gosh Ross I hadn't actually made that connection but now that you've said it I think that is actually what the quality Joanna brings is that she makes you feel seen and I I think you're spot on I'd never made that Mm. that connection now Michelle I'd like to dive into your PhD research because you talked about the motivation and the purpose for you doing that in terms of many people talking to you about their own self-confidence and also your self-confidence. So I wonder if you could explore that a little bit more for the listeners. Could you tell us what self-confidence is to start with? So what's interesting, Ross, is that a substantial body of research exists that attributes the construct of self-confidence to multiple and to diverse organizational and individual workplace outcomes. And yet... There is no everyday accepted definition in academic research of the term self-confidence. And the confusion is even more apparent when the relationship between self-confidence, self-esteem and self-efficacy 
is considered. Wow. Do you know what? I'd never really thought that there wasn't a, a standardized definition. I guess we each have our own internalized definition of what self-confidence might mean. And I think that's where the confusion comes then in terms of the research, because there's a lot of research that shows that self-confidence is essential for thriving organizations because they're dependent upon the self-confidence of their employees and that self-confidence enhancing initiatives, for example, boost employee capacity and performance and well-being. So all of these outcomes are attributed to something that we haven't yet defined. Wow. Blimey. That's so interesting. And Michelle, so what, what did your research involve? I mean, give us, I, I, I don't want to diminish the impact or the magnitude of your research, but could you give us a, a lay person's view of, of maybe the core elements? Of course. So the study I undertook was the first research study to amalgamate the construct of self-confidence with the process of executive coaching. And I did that through what's called a Delphi study. So there's research to say that employees who have high levels of self-confidence are perceived by others to be more competent, which in turn enhances their ability to attain social status, as well as elevates their position of power within groups. And not only does appearing self-confident discourage others from competing at the same position for promotion, but it also increases one's selection interview success and the likelihood of being hired and the access to further career enhancing opportunities, including promotion. Whereas in contrast, low self-confidence is associated with a hesitancy to act, limited autonomy, low self-esteem, increased risk of burnout and job dissatisfaction and higher levels of workplace stress. And as a consequence, career advancement opportunities are significantly reduced. Whoa. Mm. That's... My mind's going off in all sorts of tangents, Michelle, to think about... Firstly, my own experience, we always tend to think about ourselves and thinking about those people who were confident and got on and those people who were perhaps more reserved and shy and thinking about me, but also how that plays out across the landscape of an organization. It's really fascinating and groundbreaking research you did. Oh, thank you. And I'm intrigued by your, your methods. Can you give me an idea of the number of people involved? I have to declare, listeners, that I was a subject for the Delphi study, I believe. You were. And, and I don't even know what a Delphi study <laughs> is. So could you tell me a bit about your methodology uh, and the, the kind of number of, number of people involved? A Delphi study came from medical research, actually, Ross, because they were trying to look at complex problems that did not have one singular solution. So the purpose of a Delphi study is to bring together experts who have an opinion, or experience on a particular topic and to ask them a number of structured questions as well as ask them to consider future aspects. So in my case, it was to try and understand with a group of 38 experts what they thought was the relationship between 
self-confidence and executive coaching? And how could executive coaching be used to enhance self-confidence in a more deliberate way? And so the outcome of the study was a framework that these 38 experts, including yourself, Ross, so you were one of my experts, mm -hmm. um, who came together through a four-stage process which included interviews and um, ranking and rating of uh, outcomes to produce a really clear framework of the things that were important cognitively, behaviorally, and emotionally to target specifically in executive coaching methodology and to bring those aspects into focus and into life. Beautiful. Thank you for, for bringing that to life because as a, as a participant, you've just really helped me understand what a Delphi study is. And I wonder, Michelle, if you could talk to us about maybe a couple of the headlines that you found. You've talked about a framework... Yeah. But is, are there a couple of headlines you could present to us? So in terms of the behavioral aspects of self-confidence, Ross, most of us can observe when someone else appears to us to be self-confident. So we have an understanding of what it looks like if someone is self-confident. And yet what was most provocative to me in the study was the fact that we all seem to experience self-confidence differently. So how you would experience yourself to be when you're feeling confident and whenever I'm feeling confident are actually very different. And yet to the individual observing us, we would potentially demonstrate the same behaviors. But the cognitive experience and the emotional and physiological experience tends to be very different and very individualized. So for coaching, it means that we don't have one specific solid framework. The challenge for the coach is to understand the world of self-confidence as experienced uniquely by that individual coachee and to work with that beginning rather than impose um, an off-the-shelf uh, product or framework. Yeah. If I if I had an applause sound effect, I'd play it <laughs> right now because that's such a beautiful finding from your research that we really need to focus on the individuality of the relationship and the coach striving to understand the perspective of their coaching. Exactly. So, so important. Thank you. So we're always keen to get takeaways and top tips, Michelle. I wonder if you've got advice for coaches working with self-confidence. So I suppose a top tip probably for leaders is that even though someone presents as appearing to be self-confident, they often aren't. And so we make this assumption that individuals are self-confident and we push them to do things that are often out of their comfort zone in that stretch zone and that's fine but sometimes into the overwhelming zone so we have to be very careful not to assume as leaders of others that what we 
are reading in terms of the external presentation is actually an accurate reflection of what's going on internally for the individual. Thank you. And do you bring your research, the depth of it, do you find you're bringing it into your own coaching practice? I do. All through my life, Ross, my self-confidence just crippled me. And even though I went to work for one of the big four professional services organizations, I used to sit and look at all my peers and be in awe of them and actively avoid anything that put me in the spotlight. I'm good with one-to-ones or good with one to like three, four, fives, but to speak out in a boardroom or to stand up and do a presentation would just be such a mask. It would terrify me. And all through my career, I think I have acquired uh, additional um, mechanisms such as ACT or CBT or hypnosis, all to try and understand and build my own self-confidence because I was so conscious of how crippling it is when you don't have self-confidence. And so in my own coaching, I use a lot of those methodologies because there's aspects of those that have contributed to my enhancement of my own self-confidence. Um, in terms of the undertaking the PhD, something quite catalytic happened as a consequence of doing all that research, Ross, because I had the privilege of interviewing people who I thought were the most self-confident individuals that I've ever come across. And all bar one said that they often experience times of low self-confidence. And that rocked my world. The fact that these people that I perceive to be so confident all the time actually experience low self-confidence. And I started to look a little bit more into if everyone is experiencing low self-confidence, then why? And actually, in a way, it's kind of our gift. So if it wasn't helpful, it wouldn't exist. So what low self-confidence allows us to do, Ross, is to become increasingly alert, to become much more observant, and to start to take in information at a much more focused manner than we would have done if we were not in that state. So it's a really important aspect of our psychology to embrace and to um, hold with care and with regard and with uh, appreciation rather than something to be fearful of. And when I was able to understand that, then I I honour my moments of low self-confidence now and I am so grateful for them instead of being fearful of them. Michelle, thank you so much for your vulnerability and the way you've reframed that for me completely and honoring those moments of low self-confidence is just causing a domino effect right now in my head. And thank you for doing such profound and important research and for sharing it with us today. It's an honor to have you as a first <laughs> at, at seven. I really value your wisdom and your expertise. And it's so wonderful to have this opportunity to talk more about your research and hear more about it because this has been 
years of your life, this research, and heck, we should be trumpeting it from the rooftops. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. It's been a, a super privilege to chat and with likewise, you. And likewise, Ross. Thanks for having me.